Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. Hello and welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host this week, Sarah Whitmire, and co-host Ben DeBoutier. Bob Zaltzberg is off this week, but he'll be back next week. Today, we're talking with guests about the state's abortion law and, and also just some abortion laws in other states and how it is just the whole environment has shifted since the Roe decision last year. Indiana's ban on abortion is set to take effect August 1st after being on hold because of some court challenges. We've got three guests joining us on Zoom today. We have Dr. Katie McHugh is an OBGYN and abortion care provider in Indiana. Dr. Caroline Rouse is a maternal fetal medicine specialist and an assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology at IU. And finally, Dr. Kristen Jakowski is a professor in the School of Public Health and also a senior scientist at the Kinsey Institute. You can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. You can also send us questions via email to news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can also call in and join us on the air. The phone number is 812-855-0811, 812-855-0811. So thank you to all of our guests for being here today. I know we have a lot to talk about, a lot of sort of um, muddy waters about how this is going to affect folks in Indiana. Thank you. So, um, Dr. Rouse, I was thinking we could just start with you, and you could explain what is going to change uh, starting August 1st. Sure. Um, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, so, uh, starting August 1st, there are several changes to existing abortion restrictions in the state of Indiana that are um, going to be able to be enforced. Um, SEA 1 and Senate Enrolled Act 1. Um, uh, makes changes to who can provide abortions and related provisions to that. So it repeals licensor provisions for abortion clinics. So for example, Planned Parenthood um, and so states that abortions may only be performed in hospitals or ambulatory surgical centers that are majority owned by a licensed hospital. It also makes some changes to um, insurance coverage. It restricts commercial health plans, though not self-funded plans from providing abortion coverage not allowed in state law. Um, and per previous law, this is not a change, but um, abortions um, can only, cannot be performed by anyone other than physicians. It further defines a lawful abortion um, as one occurring in only uh, certain very specific circumstances. Um, so abortion would be considered lawful if the pregnancy is the result of rape or incest and the abortion is completed prior to 10 weeks post-fertilization or 12 weeks by last menstrual period dating. Um, it also uh, defines lawful abortion as one that occurs prior to 20 weeks post-fertilization or 20 week, 22 weeks by last menstrual period in the case of a lethal fetal anomaly, um, or uh, if in the reasonable medical judgment of the physician, the abortion is necessary to prevent any serious health risk to the pregnant person or to save that person's life. Would, All of these require the physician to certify in writing the reason for the abortion and provide uh, all facts and reasons supporting that certification. I want to dive into that a lot more, this exception and what that means for physicians and, and patients going forward. But first, I want to get Dr. Jakowski involved in the conversation here. Um, hearing the what Indiana's law entails is, is something like that's pretty typical of how states have responded um, since Roe v. Wade was overturned. There's like a mishmash of, of new laws now. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, I wanna echo, um, thank you for, for having me on this and I'm looking forward to this conversation. I would say that it depends on the state, uh, but as far as the states that have been post Dobbs, uh, Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization post that decision from last year, those states that have been either having trigger laws or passing further legislation, this sort of trajectory in terms of limiting abortion or restricting abortion based on gestational duration 
and those circumstances mentioned by Dr. Russ, that's pretty consistent with, with the states that are trending in that direction, which largely includes states in the Midwest and um, and south, you know, south, southern region of the United States. How seriously did you take or um, feel about the holdup in the court, I guess? Um, did Were you surprised to find out that Indiana's ban would go into effect in August? Um, I can start and say, uh, given the composition of our of our legislature, it's not it wasn't entirely surprising this direction. The holdup, um, I think, you know, I, I think in some ways a little bit surprising given the trajectories and the timelines of other states. I'm a little surprising it took this long, but I think uh, again it's it's on that same sort of trajectory based on the the states that are going in this direction. Um, so I'm not, wasn't entirely surprised, I guess. Dr. Rouse, did, uh, I know we have Dr. Uh, McHugh joining us, but Dr. Rouse, I think you have a question for Dr. McHugh. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's also important, you know, the legal landscape is, is changing um, pretty, I would say rapidly and, and regularly. Um, and there is still an existing challenge to the uh, abortion ban um, that uh, rests on a religious freedom argument. And I was wondering if Dr. McHugh could maybe speak a little bit more to that. Yeah, uh, I'm so glad to be here with with all of you and talking about this because this affects all of us. You know, it's not just me in an abortion clinic and it's not just Dr. Routh in the hospital. It is all of us who are affected and oppressed by these laws that take away our freedoms. When we talk about religious freedom, uh, it is traditionally been understood that we want freedom from something. We want freedom from oppression or from the, um, you know, being forced to do something um, that uh, is not in alignment with our religious views. And this um, exemption um, or, or injunction is no different. Uh, people are claiming that um, they are uh, that their religious beliefs and that their sacred understanding um, is um, it requires them to end a pregnancy that is not consistent with their religious beliefs. Um, but the the law, the ban, um, is preventing them from doing that. And so the religious freedom injunction um, is an attempt to um, to se secure some protections against being forced to do something with our ourselves and our bodies and our lives which goes against our religious beliefs. It is confusing how that will play out legally. Um, for example, do you have to prove how religious you are? How religious is religious enough? You know, all of these questions are still very much up in the air and the, um, the case has not yet been heard by the Indiana Supreme Court. That is planned, I believe, for September. Um, and it's unclear about how much protection that will offer, um, uh, you know, people in Indiana who need abortion care. What I will also add um, is that the confusion is the point. The, the point of these laws all across the country are never to protect life. They are never to protect the people who are pregnant or the, the future or potential children. Um, that is not ever the point of these laws. The, the point of these laws um, is to exert control over the population. That control is most um, most seen in historically and um, oppressed populations like um, black and brown people, like migrants, uh, like people who are under or uninsured. Um, and this is where we we see the most harm from these laws and these bans, because these are exactly the people who are the least able to uh, tolerate or compensate for another pregnancy. They are busy trying to take care of their families and keep a, keep their job and pay their bills. And another pregnancy and another um, another person adding to their family is not um, consistent with what they want for their lives. 
So it is a very, very uh, confusing and damaging law, and uh, we will be suffering the repercussions of this ban for many years. Can you, if you can help me understand just a little more clearly with the religious exemption challenge, does that just apply to the people in the suit? Like how narrowly is 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 that um, being written or could that apply to other people who have sincerely held religious beliefs? Great question. Um, and it is such a good question that we are going to have to wait for the courts to answer that. Um, we... Um, you know, everyone is interpreting the current injunction slightly differently because it is so um, vague and, and nebulous. Um, it is possible to interpret the injunction that the injunction only applies to those actual individuals that that brought the suit. It is also possible to interpret that that anyone could uh, claim and and uh uh, hold those religious beliefs as their reasoning for um, needing abortion care. So it is going to be very much up to the institutions, the hospitals, um, who will have to take on this burden since we in the outpatient world are um, going to be prohibited from providing this this health care that we are so skilled and experienced in providing. Dr. McHugh, I know we said we wouldn't get too much into legal stuff, um, but I was just curious, um, you know, how similar would this be to like a religious exemption for the COVID vaccines or something like that? Like, why wouldn't it be sort of treated similarly? Like, I know for work we had to get the COVID vaccine. Yeah, um, that's a great example and a perfect way um, to to conceptualize that analogy, uh, or to uh, sorry to use that analogy to conceptualize the the similarities. And it seems it seems common sense that we would be able to use that reasoning. The difference is that um, it was not ever legally mandated that we all receive the COVID vaccine um, and you had to prove religious exemption to get out of it. It was policy um, at institutions and you had to prove this and that, but it was never a legal requirement that you would be prosecuted for if you did not comply. So that's the difference um, now. And it, it serves to um, illustrate the point of how ridiculous it is to try to legislate healthcare like this. People have needs, people have beliefs, and people are are capable of making decisions about their own bodies and should be allowed to do so. And our state legislature is very much interfering in that um, in that that uh, freedom. Dr. Rouse, I you know, and maybe all of you will have something to say about this, but. I can't help but wonder when Dr. McHugh is talking about all the uncertainty and the questions surrounding this, just how has that already affected doctors and what they what they will provide for a, a woman? Well, I think that, like Dr. McHugh said uh, at the beginning, the the confusion is is part of the intent. Um, so. People, physicians are scared. People who provide healthcare are scared um, to sometimes provide healthcare for things that the law would not consider to be an abortion, um, such as a miscarriage or an ectopic pregnancy. The Department of Health, um, shortly after the, um, or like in the, during the special session last year, um, uh, did release some guidance about was, what was and was not considered an abortion. But because of the nebulousness of the way that the law is written, um, it is understandable how uh, people who work in healthcare could have reservations about providing care um, to people who are pregnant, just period, full stop. Um, so, you know, people are scared. People do not want to go to jail for doing their job. Um, there are criminal penalties in existing um, Indiana abortion law, and those are uh, remain in the new SEA-1. Um, I think the other thing that's really important to keep in mind is the, the sanctity of the uh, physician-patient relationship is seriously compromised by this law, this legislative interference in that complex decision-making that it needs to occur um, when a, a person is making a really um, you know, potentially important decision about their health. Um, if that patient is concerned that the physician is gonna be 
you know, making recommendations based on something other than the best medical evidence, you know, what that, how can they trust what's going on? So it just, it's, it's really devastating um, what is happening. And, and like Dr. McHugh said, this is going to be affecting us for, for a really long time, as long as certainly as long as it's in effect. Are there any potential issues you could see of malpractice lawsuits arising um, within your own practices? Um, I think the question of malpractice is a little bit um, hard to answer. I don't know, but you know there are there are a, a felony penalty, a felony charge. Um, that could be leveraged against a physician for performing a quote unquote unlawful abortion. Um, and so that is uh, something that people are going to be thinking about as they decide what care they provide and, and who they provide care for. I guess I was curious because I've seen a few different news articles about states already that have a ban in place where um, there is an exemption for a medical emergency, but um, doctors are hesitant, and then um, a woman's health or a person who's pregnant, their health is put at risk. And I'm just and blame the doctor later. And I'm just wondering if that's a concern or something that you could see happening here. Um, I, you know, I think we should be concerned about all of those types of things that are happening elsewhere, happening here now with our ban and those types of MTALA violation concerns um, should certainly be something that we're thinking about. So MTALA essentially means that if a patient presents um, with an emergent health need, that patient needs to be taken care of, evaluated and treated as necessary um, and not uh, and not turned away. So that that's the primary basis for which those other concerns have been have been raised. And there are certainly pregnancy uh, complications that are um, immediately life-threatening to a pregnant person, things like bleeding, infection, um, and denying treatment to um, a person who is pregnant in those circumstances um, who presents for care would certainly raise concern for that type of a violation. How often are these kinds of issues um, that arise um, connected to comorbidities or other health issues? I know in Indiana, we have really high rates of heart disease and um, I think hypertension. I'm just wondering if there are any things that leave somebody vulnerable. Uh, yes. I. I think it's important before we go into comorbidities to talk just about the risk of pregnancy. Um, the risk of a pregnant person dying during pregnancy or the postpartum period is 14 times higher than somebody who undergoes uh, a pregnancy termination or an abortion procedure. So even for people who are completely healthy, there is inherent risk in continuing a pregnancy um, that you know people don't often think about. Uh, as a high-risk physician, I have absolutely in my practice, seeing people who are completely healthy, no medical problems, who uh, suffer devastating, lifelong health-threatening complications resulting from pregnancy. So sort of at the outset, it is really important to keep in mind the, um, the overall risk that pregnancy poses just generally. And then when you start to think about um, medical complications, um, Yes, that is true. People who have pre-existing medical conditions are at an even higher risk of morbidity and mortality. So diabetes, high blood pressure um, are two of the most common uh, medical conditions um, for which I see patients who, who are pregnant, um, and they, they can make pregnancy very complicated. So I know one of the exceptions that's written into Indiana's law is that women have a right to an abortion in life-threatening circumstances or if pregnancy risks serious health problems. Um, maybe, Dr. McHugh, you could, what are, what are some of the issues you hear in that language? The issues that I hear there are that it is so difficult to quantify or to list what those complications are or or should be to be serious enough that a person can qualify for an abortion. As an abortion provider, I am constantly concerned that some small 
tiny action that I do um, is going to shut down my clinic, is going to land me in jail, is going to revoke my medical license, which threatens uh, the safety and the well-being of my family and my children. Um, these are these are huge concerns that are unique to abortion. You you know the people who are performing your colonoscopy are not worried about submitting the correct report to the state. Um, otherwise, they might be fined or go to jail. That is not something that happens anywhere else in our healthcare system except within abortion care. And the reason that the language that you just read is so dangerous is because it traps us and it it forces us to choose between what is right for the patient and what is safe for us uh, as, as human beings. When I am thinking about the patient in front of me versus the health and future of my children, I don't I don't know what to do because I took an oath to always do what is right for the patient in front of me, to put my own beliefs and needs aside and so that I can serve the patient um, and, and be that person for them in that moment. And I'm a mother and a partner and a human being and I don't want to lose my, my freedom. Uh, this puts us in, in an incredible trap. And again, that is the point of these laws, is to make it too confusing, too too worrisome, too dangerous, uh, to um, allow people the power to make decisions over their own bodies. Um, and so this is, this is exactly the language that is intended to be in the law to be too confusing, uh, to be um, uh, implemented. So there is essentially no um, condition that is uh, dangerous enough that any clinic would be like, oh, that's that's probably fine. Let's just do that. It, it should be fine. That is not where we are right now in this state. I, I'm curious in your experience, um, I mean, how many times do you have, uh, you know, I'm sure maybe not to list times, but I mean, how often is does a life-threatening situation present itself where you know, it's unexpected. It wasn't something that you knew about when the person got pregnant and where you see that something like this could be, how likely is it something like this could end up being particularly problematic? Yeah, that's a really important question. And I will harken back to what Dr. Rouse said that um, we see this all the time. So I am an OBGYN and I work on labor and delivery. I have provided abortion in several different states in our country. Um, and I all the time see patients who were perfectly healthy before they got pregnant and some condition develops. So, you know, these patients are not, you can't predict it. You can't see that it's coming. We don't know the difference between um, patient A and patient B. We can't tell which one will develop a life-threatening condition and which one would be safe to deliver at home. We don't know. We also don't know um, the difference between the um, the the uh, the risks of people who've had previous dangerous um, pregnancies. They are at higher risk, but they they might be okay this pregnancy. They they might not be okay. It, you know, there there is so much confusion. Not confusion. There's so much we still need to learn in medicine before we can make those kinds of predictions. And that is why it is it is nearly impossible to say the this list of conditions is too dangerous, but this other list of conditions is not dangerous enough. So, for example, if you have someone who has high blood pressure and they develop high blood pressure um, in their pregnancy, they may just have high blood pressure for the last little bit of their pregnancy and then it goes away and then they're fine. Or they may have um, a condition that develops from that high blood pressure that causes liver failure and seizures and death. And we don't know which way it's gonna go, which is why we do frequent testing and lab work and all these very expensive, very burdensome uh, testing for these patients to try to figure out who's gonna get sick and who's not gonna get sick. But the truth is that we're, we're making our best guess to keep as many people safe as possible, but we cannot predict ahead of time who is going to have a truly life-threatening development and who is gonna be okay. That is why the person who is pregnant must be the one willing to accept the risk of being pregnant, not the state who wants 
the person to continue being pregnant uh, because of whatever uh, reason that they state. It is the person who is actually taking on the physical life-threatening risk of being pregnant has to be the one willing and choosing and consenting to that risk, not have that risk forced upon them. Today on, on Noon Edition, we are talking about abortion laws and just the effects. You can join the live chat by tweeting at Noon Edition, or you can email us at news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can also call in with your questions or comments at 812-855-0811. Dr. Jakowski, I want to go to you. We're talking about, you know, of what what this new law bans. And in your opinion or your research, is this in line with um, what a, a lot of Hoosiers' opinions? Is this is this what people would like to see? Yeah, that's a great question, and it's so interesting to hear the other discussion going on. Um, as far as public sentiment or public opinion on abortion, what we see is that most people are not don't uh, don't endorse these all-out bans. In other words, people would like abortion to be legal, at least at some point during pregnancy, most notably earlier in the pregnancy, and then there's more um, endorsement of restrictions later in pregnancy. Uh, Certainly, some of the complicated circumstances that uh, Dr. McHugh and Dr. Rouse are talking about with issues related to life endangerment, public sentiment is very consistent and strong that those are circumstances in which people want abortion to be legal. So some of this ambiguity that it sounds like Dr. McHugh is talking about may, you know, is not in line with, with general public sentiment on abortion. How much do you think education or like public knowledge plays into opinions? That is a great question and sort of a moving target. You can kind of think about public awareness or knowledge in several different ways, broadly speaking educational attainment uh so just you know years in school attending achieving high school um or uh college graduation or graduate school those sorts of um or just like i said years in education that is generally strongly correlated with more permissive views towards abortion so people as educational attainment goes up generally people are more inclined to endorse legal abortion in um, more circumstances or throughout you know um, in all circumstances etc We could also think about knowledge or awareness more specifically related to reproductive health or sexual health. And uh, in the United States broadly and in Indiana particularly, there is a lot of variability in terms of the education people may receive in terms of sexuality and sexual health. And that's probably a whole nother conversation (laughs) that we may not have time for here, frankly. (laughs) Um, But people are generally not aware of some of the Certainly some of the details that the other folks have brought up, but even more broadly, um, what, for example, what does it mean? What are the implications of overturning Roe v. Wade? That was something our group has investigated back in 2018 and, you know, over the last several years before overturning, before, you know, Dobbs even happened. And people, there's, you know, limited understanding there. Uh, And then just general awareness about laws or restrictions. People are generally not not up to date, not following these things, these these nuances and details that folks have, you know, have we've been discussing here. So there's general lack of information there. What we do see in terms of a relationship between that knowledge or that awareness and attitudes is um, perhaps interesting in uh, generally speaking, as um, that info, as people are more aware, there is um, more people hold more permissive attitudes, uh, more, you know, are more inclined to endorse legal abortion or in another study we did, uh, we assessed upholding Roe v. Wade, again, prior to it to being overturned. However, in some of the research we've done, we've also asked uh, people how they identify in terms of abortion labels, so common labels people are familiar with, like pro-life or pro-choice. We've also asked people if they identify as both or as neither of those labels. And so we see the relationship function slightly differently based on how people identify in terms of those labels, such that for people who identify as pro-choice or neither pro-choice nor pro-life or both pro-choice or pro-life, we see that positive relationship, um, increased awareness as associated with more permissive attitudes. But for folks who identify as pro-life, 
increase awareness is associated with more anti-abortion sentiment or, you know, thinking abortion should be illegal or not legal in more circumstances or all the time. So that that's kind of an interesting uh, distinction. And again, sorry, that was a long response to just kind of talk about all the different ways that you could think about knowledge. No, I think it's super interesting. It was what came to mind was I did a story back in the fall about sex education and Indiana doesn't really have many requirements for sex education in public schools. And I was just kind of curious to get what your thoughts were. And you did hit on that. So I think that's interesting. Earlier, Dr. Rouse was ex- explaining um, sort of at, at what week these different things, and it sort of turned into soup a little bit in my head. But I think I remember you saying that for cases of rape or incest, abortion is allowed up to 10 weeks. So, um, Dr. Jaskowski, I wanted I want to get your thoughts on that and just sort of this 10 week time frame. Does that feel sufficient to you? Is that is that typical? Typical in terms of uh, what other people... states have have done um, with with theirs. It, it, there's a lot of variability. States like Arkansas, for example, have bans throughout the entire gestation duration. Uh, states are you know having six week or ten week or okay. fifteen week. There is that that rollback prior to the loose viability. You know. Um, Presidents are framework sort of established in, in Roe v. Wade, but then also sort of chipped away with uh, Casey versus Planned Parenthood. And, and you know, uh, it's interesting when we're talking about this and, and with respect to knowledge, the notions of weeks gestation with last menstrual period and, and when people know they're pregnant, all of that, again, going back to knowledge, people are not necessarily familiar. Most people are not necessarily familiar with all that nuance that how we measure pregnancy can vary, whether we're talking in Dr. Rouse, I think, was making those distinctions between last, you know, last menstrual period and um, weeks weeks pregnant. So, so people are just generally not aware of, of of that at all. Even folks who who are pregnant or have been pregnant, right? <laughs> yeah. And I would say specifically, you know, if we're talking about in cases of rape and incest, um, for people who are seeking abortion care. Um, people who have been the victims of sexual violence are some of the most disadvantaged in terms of being able to actually access the care that they need. They're more likely to be, um, you know, there's a there's a higher prevalence of that in adolescent populations who, you know, there's a whole host of um, issues with access to care in that population. Um, they may have um, other, you know, inter personal uh, conflicts that prevent them, you know, if they have a partner who is preventing them from accessing health care. Um, some people don't even know that they're pregnant um, at that uh, gestational age. So I just, you know, when we're talking about is is 10 weeks post-fertilization enough, uh, you know, that is no. I mean, the answer is no. And uh, again, just to jump in here and say how incredibly cruel that is to the person who was assaulted, to the the people who will be charged in taking care of the person who was assaulted and who is being forced to carry their their rapist's um, fetus. It is incredibly, incredibly cruel to try to put a time limit or an expectation on on that person. Um, So, you know, when you think about these um, laws from a compassion or a patient centered approach, uh, it is reprehensible. So I, I would very much say that it is neither typical nor sufficient um, care or time. Doctor, just and, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say just to piggyback on that last remark. Um, as far as public sentiment goes, you know, as I, I sort of mentioned earlier, that there's more greater endorsement of legal abortion earlier in pregnancy, especially through the first trimester. That said, situations like if a pregnancy was the result of sexual violence or rape or incest um, or or other things, fetal anomaly or um, life endangerment, generally people say, yeah, and, and later is, is also understandable. So there is increased, I guess, tolerance for abortion for some of these circumstances. So people are more um, tolerant of, of or willing to endorse legal abortion at these for these you know, circumstances later in the pregnancy. In your work, um, do you know what are the reasons that people give or attribute their um, their 
desire for more restrictions? Are they like usually religious? What are the things that they sort of use to support their opinions? There's there's a host of, of things I think we've been seeing. I, religion is certainly a very strong correlate of abortion attitudes. And again, generally more religiosity, whether measured through different um, markers is generally associated with more anti-abortion sentiment. So that's a very strong, um, I guess, correlate. But other things that people draw on, I think that there is, you know, this tension between abortion being healthcare and abortion also being something else that people hold and uh, acknowledging that some of this can be built on when people perceive quote unquote life begins, which may have religious underpinnings or, or moral underpinnings or something to that effect that influences that perspective. There's also a sort of a notion that people want those seeking abortion to take it seriously and not, you know, sort of approach abortion. Sometimes we hear in interviews we've done with folks saying, I don't want people to be irresponsible or frivolous uh, with with abortion contemplation, you know, and and so I think that research from, for example, Turnaway study as well as other research shows that people do think about abortion um, quite a bit. And that is something that really drives people's sentiment. Um, circumstance also really matters why people are seeking abortion. Now, that's not something that's legislated, except in some of these issues we've already been talking about, uh, whether it's gestation duration or other specific circumstances, rape and so forth. But but other you know reasons matter to people, uh, why people are seeking abortion in terms of driving their opinions. Dr. McHugh and Dr. Rouse, how much have you guys been engaging with these opinions in the last year? I imagine um, a lot of these bans have been dominating a lot of your conversation in time. Yes, um, I spend most of my time talking about abortion with people, talking about um, why people need abortion access and abortion care. Um, you know, I find it really interesting. Dr. Joukowsky's research is so fascinating and provides so many insights into um, public sentiment about abortion. And um, also, so I find it so fascinating. And I don't care why people need abortions. I don't care why someone is across the, um, the, the room from me and requesting health care in the same way that when people come to me and want to be pregnant and I help them to become pregnant, I don't care why they want to be pregnant. I don't care. Uh, I want the best for them as a human being and I want them to feel empowered to create the life that they want. That is the end of my my uh, interest. Um, I want people to be healthy and safe to the extent that they want to be, but people are their own person. I just wish that we could let people be their own person, let them uh, drive and choose their own lives. Um, it is not up to me to judge if someone is being responsible or not. It is not up to me to judge whether someone has a good enough reason to have an abortion. Um, my job is to use my skills and my expertise and my knowledge to provide safe and compassionate and excellent health care. And that's it. Dr. Jakowski, I'd like to to bring you in here because, I mean, you were just saying that, you know, people do want some sort of... Um, they want people to take this seriously as sort of the public opinion. They want some sort of guardrail. So I'm thinking about a state like Illinois that has not banned abortion. Are there still, are there things in place in Illinois still where, you know, it is treated as a, a serious medical procedure and not, you know, um, yeah, it's taken very seriously, I guess is what I'm asking. Yeah, I would I would say I totally appreciate everything that Dr. Mahib just said. Like what I'm, you know, in this in the, the research I've been doing, we're examining people's public opinion and people's attitudes towards abortion. And some of those people have not thought about abortion, have not experienced abortion, may not be aware of someone in their lives who have had an abortion. So I, I think that's a complete fair point um, that she's bringing up. Uh, as far as like the different states, I think that. Because Illinois, I, and maybe I'm misunderstanding your question, but because Illinois um, 
has more permissive, you know, is, doesn't have the restrictions that are being, that are, you know, exist in other states like Indiana. I don't know that people engage in any different behavior as a result of that. Uh, I think people, you know, I, the Turnaway study that I referenced earlier was a study data were collected from across the United States. So I don't, I don't know that there's any distinction based on state lines, like because we have more restrictions in Indiana, people take abortion more seriously here in terms of contemplating it. I don't think that plays any role. And maybe I, like I said, misunderstood your your question there. Um, as far as also people's opinions, you know, um, about perspectives on on abortion, there is some geographic variability uh, in terms of, for example, whether people think, you know, whether abortion should be legal or whether it's easy to access and so forth. But again, there's also a lot of variability and and I and and there's other stronger correlates of attitudes than than geography. So um, I hope that answered your question. Yeah, I guess I'm I'm curious too because um, prior to the ban or as it stands right now, I think it's 22 weeks in Indiana. Um, so I'm just curious if they're, you know, sort of what the what the guidelines are in Illinois. If you had any so. information or um, Dr. Dr. Yeah, she might have more. Um, yeah, so the gestational age limits in Illinois are different from uh, from Indiana and not being an Illinois resident or practicing in Illinois. I don't want to get too specific about that. But one thing I did want to say is. Um, you know, we've been talking about whether or not abortion, you know, people take abortion care seriously or how they think about abortion as a, as a serious issue. And I think it is incredibly important to make the distinction between it being a serious issue and it being um, a difficult decision for people. I take care of pregnant people who have incredibly complex medical conditions for whom uh, a pregnancy would be life-threatening. I have had pregnant patients um, who have passed away of complications related to pregnancy. And so when I am counseling people at the beginning of pregnancy about pregnancy risk, sometimes it is a very easy decision for them to make to have an abortion. That doesn't mean they're not taking it seriously, but it is an easy decision for them to make after they have weighed the risks and the benefits. It's not like that for other people. Um, you know, other people come and it's it's an incredibly, you know, complex, um, lengthy decision-making process um, among you know the patient and their family and you know other other support people that they may have, um, but and they're taking it seriously and it's an incredibly difficult decision. So I don't think that those two things are the same. You know, a decision can be easy, but also an incredibly serious one for that person. And we can extrapolate that past medical complaints or med uh, medical conditions into our general lives. When someone has um, a, a threat in their life, um, a threat to their personal safety, it is not okay for them to be pregnant. And choosing an abortion is an act of love. Choosing abortion is always done out of love. It is chosen out of, uh, out of necessity because a pregnancy at this point in a person's life is not acceptable. Whether it is a medical risk, whether it is a safety or security risk, whether it is a financial consideration, it is always an act of love, whether that is love of self, love of existing family, and love of their future life and their future plans. It is always an act of love. And to think of it any other way is, is frankly incorrect. Um, abortion is always serious. It is always considered um, with um, great care when people um, come to us and, and need this care. But that does not mean that those folks deserve shame. They don't need to prove how sad they are or sorry they are about any of this because they may not be sad or sorry. All of that is okay. Just like it is okay to not um, always be excited when um, right after your baby is born. Sometimes you feel really overwhelmed and you don't know if you can do it. That's okay. All of these feelings are okay. Um, around pregnancy is a deeply, deeply personal time and very personal decisions. And people should be allowed to have deep feelings and still make easy decisions, just like Dr. Rouse said. Okay. Um, so we 
I wanted to push you a little bit on that and follow up. Um, I know that we've been talking about the necessity of abortion as health care for your patients, but I'm wondering how you've been engaging with people in the last year, um, you know, testifying at the state house and other in other ways um, who hold different opinions. What are what's that engagement been like? Uh, I can start with that. I think that was Dr. Rouse who got cut off, potentially. Dr. McHugh? Oh, I think we actually lost Dr. McHugh. I think um, Dr. Rouse or Dr. Joukowsky, did either one of you want to take us try to answer that? opinions differ from mine is no different than um, when I am speaking to a patient um, who is concerned about abortion or who is worried about what it will mean when they have an abortion. Um, I stick to the facts and I mind my own business and I encourage other people to do the same. When um, when I speak with people who um, invoke religion, uh, I I want to remind people that their religion is not the same as my experience or my beliefs. Uh, and our country was founded on the idea that we should be able to practice our own religious beliefs. Uh, when people come to me with concerns um, about uh, the babies and about um, the loss of those um, potential children, the uh, response that I tend to um, tend toward is um, to refocus the conversation on the children that we as a society already neglect um, and try to encourage people to spend their time and uh, treasure and resources on those children. Um, the people who are um, outside of my clinics and say, uh, please don't abort your baby. I will adopt your baby. Um, I try to remind those people that this is not a transaction, that this is not um, uh, 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 an item up for sale, and um, that um, adoption is not the alternative to abortion. The only alternative to abortion is pregnancy. Adoption and abortion are not the opposites of each other. The, the opposite of adoption is parenting. Um, so, you know, they would be better off going to a playground and saying, let me adopt your child, because that is the equivalent. Uh, this is um, in incredibly dehumanizing to the people who are making um, choices around abortion. Um, and I, I try to recenter the conversation back on the people and on the risk that these people are choosing um, to um, uh, further their own life and their own goals. Dr. Rouse, can you weigh in on how IU is IU Health is approaching the ban that's starting on August first? Uh, um, yeah. So um, IU continues to provide uh, abortion care in the hospital, consistent with um, the legal guidelines that have been set forth, and um, will continue to do so um, within the legal limits after the law changes. So there obviously has to be a lot of um, work to ensure that we have um, the appropriate care guidelines in place and informing um, members, all members of the healthcare team um, about, uh, you know, what uh, what we can and, and cannot do. Um, I, you know, I, <laughs> Dr. McHugh has been so eloquent during this whole um, um, conversation, but in in just thinking about all of this, you know, our primary concern is, of, of course, our patients who we, uh, you know, a large number of them, we are probably not going to be able to take care of um, going forward with this ban. Um, but the the other population of people that we also have to be thinking about is the providers of this of this healthcare, the, the moral injury um, that is suffered by people, by physicians who are prevented from taking care of their patients, who are prevented from providing the evidence-based compassionate healthcare um, that we know is safer than that 
patient carrying a pregnancy to term is is really intense um, and there are stories from all throughout the country about concerns for physicians leaving states that are abortion restrictive or with abortion bans um, worsening uh, healthcare uh, desert situations where patients lose access to to healthcare uh, providers because they are they don't want to be practicing in a state where they they can't actually do their jobs. Yeah, and we've we've done a lot of coverage on Dr. Caitlin Bernard. Um, she was the doctor who performed an abortion on a ten-year-old rape victim from Ohio, and um, then you know has been criticized quite publicly by the attorney general. Um, and yeah, I'm I'm sure one of the things that even she has talked about is this idea that physicians will leave Indiana. Mm-hmm. So is that is that something you're already seeing? I think it's hard to it's hard to know um, this early exactly okay. how this is going to impact our our workforce, um, but yeah, I'm incredibly worried about it. Um, you know, we need to recruit and then also retain um, qualified physicians and other members of the healthcare team to the state to take care of of Hoosiers. Um, you know, we do not have the best public health uh, record in the country. We have an incredibly high maternal and infant mortality rate um, and losing obstetric uh, care um, providers and, uh, you know, really any members of any type of specialty um, is is really not the direction. I want to be going. And let me be clear, uh, this is not only going to affect OBGYNs, you know, people who move to the state who are internal medicine doctors or pediatricians or dermatologists, people don't want to live in a state where they're not going to be able to access the life-saving care that their wife or daughter or friend or whoever might need. So it's it's not just OBGYNs, it is all of us. I'm going to have to jump in there because we are out of time. I want to thank our guests for joining us today. For my co-host, Ben Tabuthi, I thank you for co-hosting today. For producer Nathan Moore and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Sarah Whitmire. Thanks for listening to Noon Edition. Thank you. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com and from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future healthcare in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org.